According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are wrapping up Proverbs 14, so let's uh, look at Proverbs 14, uh, verses 33, 34, 35, down in there somewhere. Actually, we've got to cover verse 32 to start with. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. So uh, we're going to fix that. That's not a, a good translation. That's a puzzle. And uh, even in the uh, back in Jesus' day, the rabbis were debating it because it was a puzzle to them as well. And they discussed a possible manuscript issue and uh, different commentaries uh, came to different conclusions. And in fact, the Septuagint translators understood that it was uh, a manuscript issue, and they fixed it. And they they translated the Septuagint based on better Hebrew manuscripts uh, than the Masoretic text that ended up in our Hebrew Bibles today. So part of that is what we'll be looking at. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking our Father to set aside our distractions and to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we thank you for your grace. You are the God of grace, and as recipients of your grace, Father, we uh, we praise you and thank you and appreciate all that you do for us. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 14, 32, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. And we're going to fix that. As I mentioned a moment ago, let me advance to the slide here. If I have the correct one ready. It's this one. This is a manuscript puzzle. Verse 32 has a manuscript puzzle. What is the righteous one's refuge? The rest of the vocabulary is pretty straightforward, and we get that. We've, we know who the wicked is. We've been studying the wicked throughout the book of Proverbs. That's not a shock to us. Uh, being thrust down, we're good with that. Wrongdoing, we're good with that. Uh, we, we know the things that a wicked person does, and the very things that they do become the agents of their being thrown down. The, the action of doing that is what brings them down. Uh, but then the second half of the verse, this is where the puzzle comes in. The righteous has a refuge. And it's either when he dies or uh, in his integrity. In his integrity. And that's how I prefer to translate it. I think that's what the manuscript ought to read. I think that's what the Hebrew text ought to say. Uh, is it his death or is it his integrity? If it's his death, then we have to ask ourselves, well, how? In what way is death a refuge? In what way should he flee there? In what way should he seek that? In what way should that be an encouragement to him? Um, you know, is death a refuge? Does the Bible ever tell us that anywhere? Uh, can we find corresponding passages in parallel contexts that would support that? Or is this the only verse in the world that says, you know, suicide's an option? That uh, you can just kill yourself and there's a, there's a refuge, right? Why would death be a refuge? And uh, I mean, if it is a refuge, you know, how does that encourage me today if I'm a young man and my death is 50 years from now? 
kind of a thing. So anyway, that, that opens up a can of worms or several cans of worms and, and causes other issues. Well, fortunately we don't have to go there because I don't think the text says that. And when you open up your Hebrew text even, you're going to have a footnote in there. Okay, And so uh, let me just pull it up for you here and uh, we can look at it. Proverbs 14, 32. Go to Proverbs 14, 32. And I don't normally look at text this large, but if I delay my uh, surgery much longer, I'm going to probably start having to. <laughs> All right. The wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. Okay, And so the, um, the term here, when he dies, if you highlight it, then you get the sympathetic highlighting. So even if you can't read the Hebrew there and you can't see the, the bamothu right there, there's your bamothu. But you'll notice there is a, a footnote. You'll notice that there is a, a mark in the, in the Hebrew text. All right, and it's actually in the Hebrew text is a uh, a mark sending you to the apparatus where you can read and see that there is a manuscript question with respect to that because the alternate reading is this one here is not death it's integrity. So even within the Hebrew manuscripts if you're opening up a Hebrew Bible the Biblia Hebraica uh, Stuttargensia, for example, or any of the, the Kittles Bible or the Leningrad Codex or whatever, whatever manuscripts you want to be looking at, and you flip to this text and you look, it'll have the text there that will say, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the righteous has a refuge when he dies. But then there'll be a, a marker there with an alternate reading that has this alternate reading here. The, the Bethomu reading instead of the Bamothu reading. So that's, uh, that's what we're looking at there. And you'll notice the Septuagint, by the way, translates it as integrity, as hasiateti, as integrity instead of death. So the Septuagint translators, we ask ourselves this, the Septuagint translators, what were they doing that for? Did they know that, that, that death was, a, was not a good uh, manuscript? Or did they have a better manuscript? that actually had integrity there to begin with. And that it was the Hebrew manuscript that miscopied the letters and, and got changed in between the 3rd century and the 1st century in B.C. And that's what it really comes down to. And uh, so I did this last week as well. <clears throat> the Septuagint translation seems to identify an emendation to the Hebrew text. Emendation means uh, editing, fixing that a scribe is coming along and a scribe is copying and a scribe realizes this was miscopied and so he fixes it. But in his fix, remember, remember, they held the text in a high reverence. They wouldn't change. They would just put a mark and in the margin they would say, we believe this is the correct reading, that this is, this is what it should say. But because they were so uh, reverent towards the text of the Word of God, they wouldn't, they wouldn't fix the manuscript. Okay, and so that's an emendation to the Hebrew text. Is it in uh, Bemotho in his death, or is it Bethumo in his integrity? And um, I tried this last week, and it seemed to work okay. Let me try it again. Zoom in. Here we go. That's isn't that great. That's cool. All right, so. And even if you don't read the Hebrew, 
you can still spot the uh, the first, the third, and the fifth letters are all the same in both words. So you have the baith, you have the baith, you have the wow and the wow, the wow and the wow. Okay, so it's only this, the, the, those other two, the M and the and the T, that get uh, that get swapped around. Here it's the, the the M and the T, and here it's the T and the M. And even those letters look similar anyway, even uh, um, as we see it printed here in large seventy-two point type on a projector. Imagine now you're an ancient scribe in a candlelit room trying to put a quill on a on a on a animal skin. And you're copying these things down. So, um, yes, the English word death and the English word integrity, uh, we would never confuse those words. They don't sound alike. They don't look alike. They're totally different. But the Hebrew words, bemotho and bethumo, those words uh, can easily be swapped around very easily. And that's undoubtedly what, uh, what happened here. All right. Integrity seems to be more consistent with the rest of Proverbs, as well, plus Job, Psalms, and uh, Yahweh's personal message to Solomon. And so when we start to ask ourselves, well, which way did this fix happen? Clearly it happened one way or the other. Either death was accidentally changed to integrity, or integrity was accidentally changed to death. Either way that happened. Well, that's curious. Document recovery. All right. How strange. So however it happened, the process of text criticism then uh, asks the question, well, which way did it go? Which way is more likely that it went? We are there. All right. So, uh, so we ask ourselves, what was the original and what was the change? And it clearly... Uh, the original was integrity. And somehow, by some slip of the eye, by some slip of the ear, as, as manuscripts are being copied, somehow it accidentally got changed to death instead of integrity. And that's uh, the idea there. Um, so we ask ourselves, which way did it go? And then we consider, if it went this way, does that agree with the rest of Scripture? If it went this way, does that agree with the rest of Scripture? Which option then is the one that, that agrees with the whole counsel of the Word of God? And in this case, we come to the conclusion that it is uh, integrity. It does agree with the rest of Proverbs. So let's look at it, Proverbs 2.7. And before we get to those, let me start with Yahweh's personal message to Solomon. Let's go to the end of the slide and let's look at 1 Kings 9 and verse 4. Because that'll help us before we read anything that Solomon wrote. Let's look at what Solomon was told in 1 Kings 9 and verse 4. First Kings 9 and verse 4. So it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, remember that's chapter 8 with the dedication prayer, um, and the king and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. So you remember that first time he appeared to him and said, you know, what do you want? And Solomon was so wise enough to ask for wisdom. Uh, this is now the second kind of uh, intimate gathering with the Lord and, and Solomon in a fellowship and uh, so the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house 
which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness. And this integrity of heart here, that's our term. That's our Hebrew term, the, the Bethumo term. The, 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 it's really, it's thom, uh, or tom in, the, in the, the Hebrew term there. And, and you ever study the, the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest would have? The very mysterious, the, the, the little stones that he would keep in his ephod that were called the Urim and the Thummim and they would use them for seeking the will of God. They would use them for answering questions. They were, uh, they were items that the high priest had custody of that he kept within his ephod in his high priestly uniform. Anyway, Urim and Thummim, if you ever read about those. Thummim is, is the same word here as thom or, or bethumo that we have here for um, integrity. And so it's the, it's the light and the integrity of God's revelation that the high priest had access to in his Urim and Thummim procedure. But anyway, for verse 4, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised it to, uh, to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so this is now a, a, an offer to Solomon to be able to reconfirm the Davidic covenant to Solomon, all right? And it's key to his integrity, which I find interesting, all right? So integrity was a point of emphasis. Integrity was a point of emphasis as Yahweh was speaking to Solomon, as Yahweh was offering, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord was offering to confirm the Davidic covenant personally to Solomon. Now, it doesn't happen, all right? Solomon dies a loser. Solomon abandons his wisdom and he marries all those women and he dies the sin unto death. He dies uh, a loser, okay? And, uh, and so he does not come and reconfirm the Davidic covenant to Solomon in such a way that the Davidic covenant would be, um, that the party to the Davidic covenant would be David, David and Solomon and Rehoboam and so forth. Um, what I mean, I'm, you're giving me puzzling looks. Let me explain. God made the covenant with Abraham, right? The Abrahamic covenant. And we call it the Abrahamic covenant. But then he reconfirmed it to Isaac. And he reconfirmed it to Isaac. And then he was known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And then he re-reconfirmed it to Jacob. He reconfirmed it to Isaac. He reconfirmed it to Jacob. And when he reconfirmed it to Jacob, he became known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, And it has a Trinitarian name. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, of course, Jacob gets renamed Israel, and it's everything is after that. So he's the God of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, but it is the Abrahamic Isaac-Jacob covenant, okay, if you want to take it that far. The Bible doesn't call it that, but it's still, it's confirmed to Isaac, it's confirmed to Jacob. That's the pattern. Because an offer is being made here to do the exact same thing with the Davidic covenant. And so we have a Davidic covenant now. We have the throne of David. It is still the throne of David to this day. But it could have been the throne of David and Solomon. 
It could have been the throne of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. All right, and just as it's the it's he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it could have been the throne of David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. All right, that's the offer that's being made here, and it never happens. It, the The offer he doesn't make good on the offer because Solomon doesn't walk in the integrity. the The offer is a, is conditional based on if you, if you, and so it is not a covenant promise uh, that is unconditional to Solomon. And uh, Solomon fails, and so it is simply the Davidic covenant, the Davidic throne, and uh, and everything then is compared back, right? If there's a good king like Jehoshaphat, a good king like Hezekiah, a good king like Joash, any of those good kings, it says that he walked before the Lord after his own heart, just as David his father had done. Okay, and we might imagine had Solomon been victorious instead of a loser, that all of those subsequent kings would have said. You know, good King Jehoshaphat would have said he walked before the Lord with his integrity as David and Solomon had done, right? And so you start to consider the what ifs in that kind of a in that kind of a scenario. But anyway, that didn't happen. Solomon died a loser, so we're we're done from there. Nevertheless, I think it's vital that in these words to Solomon, it's expressed uh, with that term with bemoth, with in integrity of heart. So um, also notice before we leave 1 Kings chapter 9, if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship then, them, then I will cut off Israel from the land and I, which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight this is what happens when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. Uh, so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? So um, their enjoyment of this land, their enjoyment of this temple, all these things are conditional for their obedience and, and, uh, and so forth. Anyway, there's more we can do on that. Um, stay tuned for some upcoming classes. Now we can go to Proverbs and see. All right, so this was the word that God had with him. And uh, so it's not surprising that this word comes into a lot of Solomon's writings and to uh, the Psalms and into Proverbs and wisdom literature in general. So Proverbs 2.7. Proverbs 2 7. Verse 6 says, The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And so you have the upright, you have integrity, you have parallelism that uh, seems to match well with what we're looking at this morning in Proverbs 14, 22. 32, excuse me. Proverbs 14, 32. Upright integrity. Uh, how about chapter 10 and verse 9? He who walks in integrity walks securely. And that seems to match up well with integrity being a refuge, right? Uh, if, if integrity is going to be a refuge to the, to the upright, to the righteous, 
Uh, that seems to make sense, walking securely. But he who perverts his ways will be found out, will be displayed, will be uh, revealed or manifest, plainly seen by everyone that wants to see the pervert. <laughs> All right? I just like reading pervert. It's, it's a word we're not allowed to use anymore. Because uh, our modern culture has done away with perversions and redefined them. Uh, same chapter, Proverbs 10, down to verse 29. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of integrity. And so clearly parallelism is there. Um, the upright, though, that's somebody with integrity. That's the most terminology that we see there. Chapter 13 and verse 6. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, that is, integrity, upright. But wickedness subverts the sinner. Pass by chapter 14 for the moment, because that's where we are. That's 14.32. And then 19.1, Proverbs 19.1. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. There's again perverts. Pervert action, pervert thinking, pervert words. And the Bible calls them perverted. Chapter 20 and verse 7. A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Notice it says nothing about his wealth, it says nothing about his status in the community, it says nothing about his career uh, achievements, uh, but the, the best blessing you can bestow upon your children is walking in integrity and uh, the blessing to the generations after you. Chapter, finally, chapter 28 in verse 6. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. So lifestyles are the rich and famous, <laughs> you know. But if, if, if all that wealth comes at the expense of your integrity, if you're compromising your divine norms and standards to make a buck, what are you really doing? It's much better to, uh, to walk in your integrity. And if you suffer financially, well, God takes care of that too. He provides. All right, so the context of Proverbs seems to be pretty clear that there is a benefit to integrity. In fact, there is a protective benefit. There is provision, there is protection, there is refuge, dare we say. Refuge. And so that seems to be compatible with uh, this uh, manuscript puzzle we're, we're working out. Do we find anything in Proverbs that speaks about death being a refuge? That, boy, when we die, then all our problems go away? Um, no. Okay. What about the broader scope of wisdom literature? Uh, Job and Psalms. We're going to find that Job and Psalms are very much in agreement with integrity as a refuge. Not only as a refuge, but even as a definition of what it means to be saved. And we'll talk about that when God imputes His righteousness to our account when we're a believer. Um, It has a reflection then in that kind of integrity. So uh, Job 4 and verse 6 uh, remember in chapter uh, 3 here, uh, Job is defending himself or lamenting in chapter 2 and 3. 
Job is uh, giving his first lamentation while all his friends be, uh, remain quiet. Then in chapter 4, finally the first of his friends gets to speak up and give his opening remarks. And in his opening remarks he, he discusses this. Uh, Eliphaz the Temanite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. And you have strengthened feeble knees. It's like you've been in ministry for a long, long time and you've blessed a lot of people. You've been a great pastor, okay? If we try to update it to today's terminology. Um, But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? And this is, the, this is the poetry here now. So we have fear of the Lord on the one hand, but it's put in tandem with integrity, the integrity of your ways. And that seems to be a refuge. That seems to be consistent with a good manuscript reading of, of uh, Proverbs 14.32. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent. He goes on to say, Job, you've got to be guilty. You know, if, you're, if integrity is your refuge, where's your refuge now? <laughs> Obviously you've compromised your integrity. Obviously you quit fearing the Lord. Obviously you have some secret sin that we don't know about, but this is your chance now. Come clean, Job. We'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll help you recover and repent. All right, so there's the example in Job. Psalm, uh, let's go to the Psalms. Psalm 7 and verse 8. As we start working through Psalms, and maybe I should have commented on this already with Job, if integrity is your hope, if you're banking on your integrity, um, that's fine, that's biblical, but just make sure that your integrity is being shaped by the Word of God, that your integrity is being molded and fashioned by God Himself. Okay, Because otherwise then what are you left with? You're left with a human integrity, you're left with morals, you're left with just trying to do it again through your own human effort. And an unbeliever might come along and say, well, I can have integrity. I don't have to have your Bible to, be, to, be, to have integrity. I don't have to have, be saved or have your Bible to, to be, to be uh, you know, a good person. I can be moral and not be a Christian or go to your church or read your Bible. All right? And yeah, they'll, they'll say that all the time. I get that a lot. Um, so let's just make sure in, in all these passages we're, we're seeing integrity is a refuge that we're clear on the fact that it's not human integrity that's just invented or not just being a good person, but it's integrity that's fostered and developed by the Word of God shaping who you are. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it's not really biblical integrity, is it? So, I think that holds true in Proverbs, it holds true in Job, it holds true in Psalms. And so in Psalm 7, um, let's look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries. Arouse uh, yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. So this is a, this is a, a, a psalm and it's written during a time of conflict. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. So vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. 
Do you think this came apart from being saved, apart from the Word of God shaping David's thinking? Of course not. That's, that, would be, that would be ludicrous to, to assume such a thing, that he's earned this, that he's deserved this, that I'm a good person. What, what, what righteousness does David have? The righteousness he received by grace through faith. That's the righteousness that he has. Any other righteousness is filthy rags. Any other righteousness is not worthy in God's sight. Any human righteousness, there's no vindication that can come through human righteousness. It's all disgusting in God's sight. So my righteousness, my integrity that is in me, if it's there, it's because God put it there. It's because God put it there when He saved me and God put it there and continues to put integrity there as the Word of God shapes our being. All right, so there's good stuff there. How about, um, uh, let's see, any more on this? I want to see verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. So if you think it's rough living in a sinful world, what do you think God's attitude is? Just watching all this. Psalm uh, 25. Back-to-back psalms here. Psalm 25, Psalm 26. They open in a very similar fashion. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. This is a prayer for uh, guidance and pardon, a psalm of David. Um, I'm going to go past verse 1, though. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Hope I have the right verse there. I will double check that before next week. Chapter 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And and so this is the standard. Examine me, O Lord. Try me. Test my mind and my heart. Not because I earned it, not because I deserved it, but because my mind and my heart are being shaped by your word. I'm a born-again believer by grace through faith and I'm in the Word of God. I'm being molded. I'm being transformed. And so it's still, it's still God's absolute standard of righteousness, right? It's just instead of being external, an external standard, it's now the same standard but it's been internalized because now it's shaping who you are. It's a part of who you are. But it's the same standard. It's the same absolute standard. And so... Um, it ought to be clear. Verse 11, as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. I mean, you're just stable. Whatever else happens, you know, are there, are there enemies everywhere? Are they, are they, are they uh, seeking to bring you down? Well, I'm going to walk in my integrity and I've got all the stability I need because God is there. All right. I wonder where that one from chapter 25 went. That's 25-21? You think so? Uh, yes. Integrity and uprightness preserve me. That's got to be it. Thank you. 25-21. All right. 
Integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Yep, thank you. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. So there's refuge vocabulary. Right there in, in, in context with integrity. Um, chapter 26, chapter 41, Psalm 41. And, uh, you know, is this David talking or is this Jesus talking? This is, uh, you know, half the time when you get, get these messianic prophecies and it almost seems like David's on the cross. It almost seems like David is uh, being betrayed here. Is this Judas or is this uh, Ahithophel? Who's the traitor? And uh, 13 verses of betrayal. It's not easy to be betrayed. It hurts. And... Um, Verse 5, you see enemies speaking evil against me. When will he die? When will his name perish? So is death a refuge? <laughs> They're looking for that. They're looking to kill you. When he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. Here's Judas coming to kiss Jesus in the garden. Here's Ahithophel coming to, to lie to David. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. They devise my hurt saying, a wicked thing is poured upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. Jesus called him friend when Judas came to kiss him in the garden. David called Ahithophel friend. Who ate my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus dipped the morsel in the bre- in the, with uh, Judas in the, in the cup. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. And it's a psalm of praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So we have uh, integrity. Psalm 78 In verse 72, it's a fairly lengthy psalm, isn't it? And uh, one of the many walk through the Bibles that you have in the Bible, giving a history of God's faithfulness to uh, different generations and uh, noticing uh, how in verse uh, 68, how he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built a sanctuary. Uh, verse 70, he chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds. This is part of what Lewis was talking about in the humanity of Christ with the line of, of uh, Judah and the line of David. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. He takes a shepherd to shepherd. <laughs> he takes David when all of his shepherd training and says, here you go, you're now equipped to be a king because it's shepherding to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them and how? According to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Now there's a blessing. What a fun passage. How about uh, Psalm 101 and verse 2? 
So what's the primary characteristic for a pastor? They've got to know Greek, they've got to know Hebrew, they've got to know systematic theology. He needs to have integrity. He needs to be humble. He needs to walk in uprightness. He needs to have integrity. Then he can shepherd the flock with integrity of heart, with skillful hands. All right. How about Psalm 101? I will sing of the loving kindness and justice. Oh, to you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. And so here's David inviting fellowship, inviting the Lord in his fellowship. When will you come to me? As he's ready to sing these praises. I will walk in my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. It just distracts. Absolutely distracts. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. See, I think this goes well with what we're seeing in Hebrews. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any unbelieving heart that falls, that falls away from the living God. You think it can't happen to you? David knew it could happen to him. It could happen to all of us. So we want to, uh, we want to be on guard. All right. So that's the manuscript puzzle, and I think we're good on that. Uh, we're fine with integrity being a refuge. It, uh, it agrees with the Septuagint translation. It agrees with the context of Scripture. It agrees with some of the other early versions and translations as well. So we accept it as, a, as a, the Masoretic Hebrew text as the one that's in error and needs to be amended. All right, verses 33 and 34 and 35. What do we have here in verse 33? We have a great Old Testament verse for faith rest. As wisdom rests in the heart of the understanding and it exposes the folly of fools for what it is. Proverbs 14, 33 is a great Old Testament verse for faith rest. As wisdom rests in the heart of the understanding exposing the folly of fools for what it is. And uh, we were commenting on this, one of the psalms we had earlier too, we talk about the exposure. The perverted lips get exposed, the perverted heart gets exposed. Somebody that's pursuing uh, the, the perversions, it just manifests to all the world around us uh, the, uh, the consequences of such folly. So it says in verse 33, wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding. That's where it lives. That's where it rests. That's where it resides. You know, where, uh, where do you reside? Where do you rest? You know, I mean, there's places that you visit. There's places that you work. There's places that you go. There's places that you uh, uh, engage in uh, commerce or business transactions. There's places that you go for other things. But where do you go to rest? Where do you go to dwell? Where do you abide? Okay. That's home, <laughs> all right? That's where you live, when you're living in the Word, when you're living in the Lord, when you're, living in, uh, when you're abiding in Christ. The whole concept of abiding should have this rest uh, aspect to it here. And so does wisdom, uh, when, uh, does, does, does doctrine live in you? Or does it visit occasionally? Does it drop in and, you know chat for a little bit, and then depart. Okay? That's, that's, that's a world of difference, isn't it? Between a place that you visit occasionally and a place that you dwell, a place that you inhabit, a place that you rest. 
And, uh, and so does the, it says in Colossians, it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Are you letting it? Does the word of God richly dwell within you? Does it dwell there? Does it rest there? Does it find? Or is it just a rolling stone that gathers no, no moss? It just rolls in, rolls out, in one ear, out the other. So let the word of God rest in the heart of one who has understanding. But the heart of fools, it is made known. There's consequences for the fool. And, and so it's clear. It doesn't take long. Just a, a short conversation typically. You can sit down and if, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, if the Word of God dwells in you, if, uh, if you are, uh, it doesn't take long. And you can sit down and discuss something with somebody or, and you find out very quickly that either A, they don't know what you're talking about, or they're uncomfortable since you went there. You know, can we talk about the weather? Politics, sports, anything, current events. Uh, you know, you want to talk Proverbs? You want to talk Psalms? You want to talk faith rest? Why are you always just talking about the Bible all the time? Oh, really? I'm sorry. Does that make you uncomfortable? Is it not a pleasant thing to talk about? Does it bother you to talk about the things of the Lord? Why is that? And so you learn very quickly. Um, because it's Jesus said, from the heart is what comes, you know, the words, the deeds, the things that are spoken. Um, and, you know, as far as exposing the folly of the fools, if uh, you're conducting your life according to God's wisdom, and to you it's a no-brainer, to you it's obvious, and then somebody else comes along and says, and has a completely opposite view, well, how dumb is that? I think it's folly, and it's folly that becomes evident to all. 2 Timothy 3.10. I love this verse. 2 Timothy 3.10. And I'm not name-calling. The Bible's name-calling. So I'm just quoting Scripture. <laughs> it's like a sanctified name-calling. If the Bible does the name-calling, then you quote Scripture, and there you go. The... Um, that ain't it. Why do I keep? All right, it's three nine. Um, yeah, Second Timothy three nine. So. Um, in the last days, difficult times will come. And we've got a whole chapter discussing this. For men will be lovers of self. That's 21st century American Christianity right there. The cult of self-esteem, personal uh, fulfillment. And uh, the whole thing is about self-esteem. Men will be lovers of self, and it goes downhill from there. Um, they want the ear ticklers, and all this sort of stuff is happening. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's, that's our generation right there in a nutshell. Uh, among them, verse uh, 6, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Where are the men? Where's the spiritual leadership protecting those women? Always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Notice, Men of depraved mind 
rejected in regards to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. And so this is um, the theory of obviosity that's at work, okay? It's just obvious, obvious to all if you have the eyes to see it, if you have God's divine viewpoint. If you look at that and say, well, that's just foolish. Of course it's foolish because God has made the world's wisdom foolish. If you're living your life according to wisdom, don't be shocked if, uh, if the other thing is, uh, is exhibiting itself. And it should just be on display. And uh, it's sad that so many people are, are pursuing it, but there it is. And then it goes on, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. It's more than just doctrine. It starts with doctrine, it starts with teaching, but it includes conduct. So uh, following Paul's example, is it folly or is it real? Is it, uh, is it the world's wisdom or God's wisdom? Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings. Timothy's following all that too, watching that. And you think, wow, if, if this Bible isn't true, then Paul is uh, wasting his time. What's he doing? <laughs> Why is he going to jail? Why is he being thrown to the lions? Why are all these things happening to Paul? Because uh, if it's all just a fraud, it seems like Paul's wasting his time. Anyway, the folly of fools gets exposed. How about 1 John 3.10? I better check all of these. I'm starting to think I don't know how to type. 1 John 3.10 By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It ought to be black and white. It's us and them. There's Christians that are walking in the light, or at least they're trying to. And then there's unbelievers who aren't capable of walking in the light. They are children of darkness and that's what they do. Everyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You can even back it up to verse, you know, all of these, verses 8 and 9. The one who practices sin is of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. Understand that. When you're in fellowship, you can't sin. When you're walking according to your new nature, you cannot sin. The new nature does not sin, cannot sin. Okay? It's only when you quench the Spirit and you go back to walking in the flesh again that... uh, you're back to that old nature again, and that, that can sin. It's very good at it. sins a lot. But your new nature cannot sin. It is not possible to sin. And you have that. I, I think this is the, you know, I call, what did I call this the other day? I, uh, years ago I named this the, the divine DNA or some kind of a thing. We've got, we've got paterological paternity, or we've got something, right? There's a, God has transformed us. Our new nature in Christ comes from the Father. That's our paternity. And uh, that paternity test is the fact that, you know, here we are in Christ, walking in the light. Humanity can't do that. But we have this new nature. So what a thrill. And so it doesn't mean that we don't sin, and yes, we go carnal, but we can confess, we can be restored to fellowship, and we're back to walking in the light again, and we're back to producing fruit. And so yes, children of God and children of the devil are obvious, as long as you have the eyes to see it. How about Matthew eleven nineteen?
<laughs> and you know, don't even try to placate them. They, um, the adversary, you have your standard, just live it out. They, uh, and if, if you're going to try to compromise to make them happy, you'll, it'll never work. Because here comes John the Baptist, neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. He was a lifelong Nazarite. He was under a Nazarite vow before he was even born and able to make the vow himself. Um, he was put under that vow while still in his mother's womb. He was given the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And he didn't, never drank a, a drop of alcohol. What a nut. What a holy roller. What a, what a religious kook. And uh, clearly he's got to be a demoniac. You know, what a fanatic. And so they weren't happy with him. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus, he's eating and drinking. He's not under a Nazarite vow. He's with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes. He's, he's, uh, he's having social life with a crowd that needs to get saved. Not getting drunk. They called him a drunkard. Not gluttonous, but they call him a glutton. So they call him a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. So you get the point? You will never please them, no matter what you do. You can go on the biggest apology tour under the sun and, and you know, whatever. You cannot appease them in any way. So just, hey, don't even try. Walk before the Lord. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. I love that. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That's Proverbs uh, 14, 33 right there. If, if wisdom rests in us, it's evident. If wisdom is absent from those fools and what they're doing, it's evident. It exposes it. Their lack of wisdom exposes them. And so we want to we faith rest in the Word of God. Finally then, verses 34 and 35. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Not just the Jewish people, any people. The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely. If in fact you've got a believer for a king or a president, then he will have a perspective in order to appreciate believers in his nation. But his anger is towards him who acts shamefully. And David reflected this in his Psalms. He wanted believers in his administration. Jesus will only have believers in His administration in the Millennial Kingdom. He's going to execute the wicked morning by morning in Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ. Israel is not the only nation in which righteousness can exalt it. America, righteousness exalts a nation. If we have a righteous population, is that a blessing to our nation? Of course. If we have an unrighteous population, is that a cursing to our nation? You bet. You bet. And uh, so what would, we, what would we rather see? Do we want a culture that promotes God's standards? Or do we want a culture that says, no, God's standards are hateful and we need to embrace the anything goes mentality that uh, rejects the Word of God, clearly. But it's not just uh, Israel, it's the Philistines in Genesis 20. Yes, the Philistines. This is centuries before Goliath. But uh, even so, the Philistines had righteousness. Egypt? Egypt? Well, yes. When God put Joseph on the throne next to Pharaoh, 
And Joseph got to be a blessing to, uh, to Pharaoh. Babylon, yes, because God lifted up Daniel to be a servant to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Nebuchadnezzar is called my servant. Persia, the people that invented crucifixion, <laughs> the people that invented that, that started with impaling on stakes like with Haman, and then uh, adapted it to, perse- to uh, crucifixion, and invented the, the, the most painful, excruciating execution uh, known to man that the Romans then uh, absorbed and put into practice. The Persians. There was a time when the Persians exalted righteousness under Cyrus and the influence that Jewish believers had there. Even under Xerxes with with Esther, his queen. With Mordecai, his prime minister. And even Tyre, the population that birthed Jezebel. Centuries before Jezebel, there was Hiram, king of Tyre, who was a friend of David. And he had a, a personal righteousness and blessings in these. And so it's curious to me, uh, when we look at these scriptures, Genesis 20, and I don't know, maybe we'll take some time next week to look at these, or maybe we'll just move on to chapter 15. I'm eager to be done with this chapter. But, but these are worth looking at, because is it the population or is it the king that counts? Is it the, the person at the top or is it the people that populate the land that constitutes the righteousness that God um, honors? Or is it both? Because is one a reflection of the other? Genesis 20. And if one is a reflection of the other, which way does that reflect? Which way does that reflect? Are the people considered righteous because God gave them a righteous king? Or did God give them a righteous king because as a reflection of a righteous populace that God is then blessing the righteous populace? Which way does it reflect? But in Genesis 20, to me it's curious, um, the key verse is in verse 11 when Abraham said, I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Surely there is no fear of God in this place. And here's Abraham's, here's Abraham's prejudice working against him. Okay? And he just assumes in this place with these Philistines there's no fear of God here. And so you walk into a situation with a, with a prejudice and it just colors what you assume is going to happen. And so you hear something and you hear something and you just, because you're expecting it to be whatever, then you just, that's the way you take it. Because you know that they're going to be insulting you. So when you hear it that way, you just take it that way. And well, maybe they didn't intend it that way. Why did you hear it like that? Because you expected to hear it like that. Your prejudice was working against you. Okay? And so you're all up in arms expecting to be offended or whatever. Okay, well, God t- tells him something. He says, you know what, there's more fear here than you knew because Abimelech fears me and you don't. <laughs> Abimelech fears me and now you've got to pray. And how, how uh, humbling is that? Abraham the prophet who was prejudicial and judgmental, now he's got to come along and pray for Abimelech to heal him. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll start with this next week and then we'll move on into Proverbs 15 because I think there's a lot here that we can look at. And, uh, and it's curious. So um, he's going to have to pray for you and, and God tells him this. And um, 
in verse 7, when the Lord tells Abimelech, restore the man's wife for he is a prophet, he will pray for you and you will live. <laughs> you know? Well, what if he doesn't, Lord? <laughs> you know? What if Job didn't pray for his accusers at the end of the book of Job? What if Abraham didn't pray for Abimelech? Abimelech, you talk about fearing God. He's going to pray for me? But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech comes to him and and so he prays. We see that you get down to verse 17 and uh, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his maid so that they bore children. Now how humbling is that? Because first of all Abraham has to confess and get right with the Lord and then Abraham has to admit to Abimelech sorry. Okay? You know, I uh, I failed. I let you down. Um, and, and here's a Jewish steward that has to minister to a Gentile king. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Remember we saw when your population is decreasing, God ha- His hand of judgment is on your population. Well, how about if he strikes every female in your land with sterility? <laughs> if the wombs are all closed. Wow. Well, thankfully Abraham prayed and Philistines continued as a people. We'll pick this up next week because I want to kind of explore this a bit and I want to get us mindful of what our role is in our culture so that we can be praying righteousness can exalt the United States of America and what does it take for us to be sustained as a nation. So some of these I think will be worth looking at as well. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessings we have to uh, study to show ourselves approved. Thank you for being faithful, Father. Uh, we give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.